This is Life I Swear, where we share stories and reflections from Black women about trials in their lives that have helped them heal, connect, and process. Every week, we hold space for storytelling that both challenges and inspires us to be good to ourselves. I'm your host, Chloe Dulce Livueso. Black women and girls deserve access to healing, healing that will impact generations to come. There is one organization I love that is showing up for Black women and girls in unique and powerful ways, the Loveland Foundation. The foundation's core program, the Loveland Therapy Fund, provides financial access to Black women, girls, and non-binary folks seeking therapy nationwide. The Loveland Foundation contributes to both the empowerment and the liberation of our communities. I love to see us collectively commit to our wellness, and by simultaneously supporting each other, there is power in community. To donate to the Loveland Foundation or explore other ways to give, visit thelovelandfoundation.org. Hello, everyone. So typically I release these episodes on Sundays, but this one comes a day late. So thank you for your patience. In addition to this podcast and my role at work and being a mother, I've also co-founded a creative space in D.C. with my business partner, Jasmine Smith. After many grueling months of inspections and paperwork, we finally opened our doors to Open Door Concept. It's in Woodridge in Northeast DC. It's a rentable multi-use space for creatives and entrepreneurs. It's available for production, meetings, workshops, and intimate events. We've thoughtfully designed and curated it. And as of last month, it's been available for bookings. So if you're in DC, this is my shameless plug to stop by to see the space one Saturday or Sunday morning for our coffee pop up with Mocha Box Coffee brand from 8 a.m. to 12 p.m. on weekends, or you can visit www.opendoorconcept.com. And now, a beautiful conversation with Lynn Patterson, who is poet, mama, and creative soul. I came across Lynn's work some time ago through poetry and things, and I love the honesty behind every one of her words. But in this talk, we talk about how that honesty and vulnerability sometimes doesn't translate to off of the paper. We also talk about how escapism can unknowingly push us towards discovering ourselves as a beautiful surprise or after effect. It's a beautiful conversation and Lynn's perspective is rich. I hope you do enjoy. Lynn, how are you doing? <laughs> I'm doing good. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. So in the spirit of, you know, just having the autonomy to self-identify, how would you describe yourself? I would describe myself as, I think, first and foremost, a Black woman. I think a lot of my experiences in life I've learned through my writing are 
um, at the intersection of my identity as both Black and woman. I am a storyteller. Storytelling has been in my family for uh, generations and is something that um, I feel really connected to ancestrally and culturally. I am an educator. I've been teaching for just over 10 years now. And actually, let me change that. I would say I'm a learner. So I have been a teacher, a facilitator. Um, I'm in grad school right now, but I think like regardless of whatever space I step into, I always want to be like soaking up knowledge and whether that's like facilitating it or being like someone who is just in a classroom. Like I just love learning about people and things and just want to get everything that I can out of knowledge in life. And then I think lastly, I am a, I don't know, a person. <laughs> like I'm a sister, I'm a daughter. I So I have like all of these identities of belonging, I guess, to other people in my life that are really mm -hmm. special to me. But I'm learning how to not let like cultural scripts define what those relationships have to look like and to bring my own personhood to that belonging. So that's me. I love it. I love it. I love it. I love it. And so and I love that you phrase it as identity of belonging to other people. I'm wondering what did family mean to you? You know, both you and I have history in the Seattle mm -hmm. area. Um, yeah. And you were the first of your family to have left, if I'm mm. quoting you correctly, because your family had been rooted there for a long time. So I'm wondering before leaving, as you think about this identity of belonging, what did family mean to you? Yeah, that's such a good question and place to start, because I think that also goes back to like how I identify as a person. But I think so you're you're right my family's been in the Seattle area for four generations and every time I travel and meet other people they're like I didn't know there was black people in Seattle and yes <laughs> we are there we exist I started growing up in one of the most historically black neighborhoods in Seattle which is the central district and many of our families came to the central district from like the south and we're part of the sort of first and second great migration. So a lot of the learning that I've done around my own family has been related to that. But I think before I left Seattle, I had a tumultuous and beautiful relationship with like my role in my family. So I talk about this really openly, but growing up, my dad was an alcoholic and that had a huge impact on the fabric of my family and the fabric of like what nurturing looked like in my home. And I had a lot of childhood trauma associated with that. And my father has since been clean. So I've been able to sort of reform that relationship. But I think that I grew up one with like hella cousins, like mm -hmm. and aunties. I because... first, first of all, I love that you say hella. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> I say hello all the time, and it is very. Um, I mean, it's West Coast centric, but yeah, um, the way they say it in the SeaTac area is just different. <laughs> yes, it is. I'm in the Bay Area now, and they say hello here, but it is it's different. 
So I, yeah, I have hella cousins and aunties and many of them are related to me and many of them are not related to me by blood, but I wouldn't know the difference like growing up. And I think that my extended family in Seattle was like humongous and doing things like getting me to like church and youth groups and providing spaces outside of my home where I felt safe to just be because my home was not the most safe place for me as a young person. So I come from a very big family and I'm very close to my family. But I think that also I've had to learn how to separate myself from some of the trauma that I experienced in my childhood. And so when I was finally able to leave and step away from my household, I was able to really think about like, who do I want to be as a person and how do I define myself? And through doing some of that work of like reparenting my inner child and and defining myself for myself, I think that that's made me a stronger family member to my family. Mm -hmm. So now I'm still like, even though I haven't lived in Seattle for over 10 years, I'm still super close to all my cousins, my aunties, my parents. I have nephews and nieces now and like all of them know me and I get to see them when I go home. So I think there's something that's just like really special and sacred about belonging. But I also think that I've had to learn how to do that in a way that empowers me and doesn't make me feel less than or like taken away from. So mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I love that. And thank you for sharing about your father. And it's interesting to counter that experience you had the women in your your life, your grandmother and grandmothers. And I'm wondering, were you also close with your mother? Yeah. Oh, man, you're about to make me cry. (laughs) (laughs) I cry so easy these days because (laughs) what I also didn't say in my introduction is that I'm in my third trimester of pregnancy and um, I'm very hormonal and like preparing myself to be a mother right now. Mm -hmm. So I would say... I think my my first initial close relationship in my family was with my father. Like my dad was just kind of like my hero growing up and his alcoholism didn't start until I was about in third grade. And so mm-hmm. I had a lot of time to develop like a really close relationship with him. And I think that a part of that relationship with him also created some distance with my mother because there was a lot of things going on in their relationship that were just unhealthy. And I often like found myself in the middle of the two of them. Mm-hmm. And so I think that like as a super young person, I was close with my mother in the sense that like she was my mom, she was nurturing and I depended on her. But I think that there was some distance and then when my father got into his alcoholism it was really hard for her because he lost his job so she had to really step up and she wasn't really around as much emotionally when she came home she sort of had to like turn things off to you know just like replenish and like try to be there her best for the next day so I feel very protective of my mom and like her experience because I know 
that she did everything she could to try to keep things as normal as possible for my sister and I. But it's taken me a long time to see that side of her. Because when I was young, all I wanted was for her to like hug me and tell me that everything was going to be okay. Or like, you know, when things were the worst of the worst, I wanted her to like leave my dad Mm -hmm. and just like all of us be able to like move on from the situation. And so I would say that now I'm very close to my mom, but it's definitely been a journey of us like getting there. Mm. So much of what you're sharing resonates with me and my story. My father drank a lot as well when he was younger and my mother worked a lot then later as like a single mother. And it's so interesting how the idea of how we think our parents should be as in their parenting roles, they're real life humans, like the way they move in that way almost betrays this idealistic view we have of them or want them to fill for our you know, for our healing. Um, I think it's so interesting. But during that time, you know, we know you now as a poet. Have you Mm -hmm. always turned to writing to cope and express and articulate your triumphs and and trials? Yeah, definitely. I I didn't consider myself a poet until like much later (laughs) in my life. And I'm still young, so I say that like I'm old, but like (laughs) just until fairly recently. So I guess one of the things that I knew growing up was like not to talk about my dad's alcoholism. So even though I had spaces outside of my home to go to that felt like sanctuaries, I really didn't have any place where I could talk about some of the like emotional and physical abuse that was happening because of his alcoholism. And so I discovered poetry when I was like in first grade. I think one of the first books I fell in love with was Shel Silverstein, Where the Sidewalk Ends. Mm-hmm. Yeah, <laughs> throwback. But I fell in love with poetry because I found like this space where I could say everything that I was thinking and feeling without explicitly saying it. So Um, I could write about it in my journal and write metaphors and all these different things. And no one would ever really know like exactly what I was talking about. But I found that I could express myself like more abstractly. Mm -hmm. And I was always really worried about like getting my parents in trouble because I knew some of the things that were happening were like not okay or that Mm -hmm. other people may like judge them. Well, and also to be real, like, you know, there's the saying, what happens in our house stays in our house. Mm -hmm. Um, And my parents used to say that all the time. So it was drilled into me that I like, couldn't talk about it. So Mm -hmm. when I found poetry, it really was like this escape place where I felt safe to express myself in ways that I couldn't do in everyday life. And I have shared this also very openly, but like I was terrified of sharing my poetry with other people because Mm -hmm. one, like I said, it had been ingrained in me not to share, you know, those deep, dark, ugly things with other people. But then two, it's just like so vulnerable for people to, you know, hear like that emotional side of you. And so, I think I was like 28 
the first time that I actually like went to therapy and I was doing some inner child work with my therapist and she actually asked me like, you know, what do you do to like process all of your emotions? Um, or what do you use as a coping mechanism? And I told her that it was my poetry. And then she asked me if I ever shared my poetry. And like in that moment, something just like hit me like a bolt of lightning. Um, I had this epiphany that even though I was using poetry to like transmute all of these emotions outside of my body, I was still holding on to a lot of the trauma because I wasn't allowing myself to let go of it. And that by sharing it with other people, that was an opportunity for me to really like own it mm -hmm. and to like fully move on from it. So I started an anonymous Instagram. Mm -hmm. <laughs> when I say anonymous, I mean like no name, no picture, no nothing. It was just like my poems and like some abstract photo where nobody could ever trace it back to me mm -hmm. and um <laughs> through the course of me just like spewing my rage into the ether people like started to find my instagram and then people started to reach out and like tell me how my words impacted them or how they had gone through something similar and um they never like had a way to describe it or like it made them feel less alone. And so I think that the process of sharing my poems has been so healing for me because I've come to understand that there's all these like shared experiences that we have as people that sometimes when we don't talk about them, it can make us feel very isolated and very alone. But when we share them, it creates opportunities for us to have like communities of care to recognize those shared experiences to validate the like harm and the impact that they've had on us and to truly be able to like move on from them and so my approach to sharing my poetry is very different now <laughs> like i i try to be as vulnerable as possible but for me it's really about being able to like own my experiences mm -hmm. that have shaped me, but don't have to define who I am. Ooh, yes, yes, I love that. And are, would you say that you're comfortable with vulnerability now? As you say, you try to be as vulnerable. Have you reached the point of being actually comfortable in it? Ooh, yes and no. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I, think, I think that I, I'm comfortable in the sense that I can let a poem go and let it sit. Mm -hmm. And I can let other people sit with it and not feel the need to have to explain myself yeah. about it. And I feel very blessed like anytime somebody sees me in that way. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But I think that in my personal relationships with people, I'm still really learning how to be that vulnerable. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And yeah. I think that like that journey has been a lot harder than just sharing my poems with mm -hmm. people because I think, well, one, there's like a layer of separation for you sure. Because yeah. Cause like, you know, when you put something, when you put something in a book and put it out there, like it lives in that physical space, but you're not having to like relive it, 
explain right. it, describe it unless you really like want to or choose to. But I think that there's sometimes where people expect, like some of the people that I have personal relationships with expect me to be able to talk more in like in an emotionally vulnerable way mm-hmm. that I'm I'm still learning how to do. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I'm still in therapy. Yeah, <laughs> and- no, I get it. And I think too, there are like different kinds, not just different layers of vulnerability, but there are different kinds of vulnerability too. And I can completely relate as a, as a writer who gotten obviously put out a book with some essays of my own and just took the plunge and just shared my writing in a way I hadn't before. And so that's like almost the worry of being intellectually critiqued in that kind of writing. But then I do dabble in poetry, which I have maybe shared three times in my entire life. Mm -hmm. Um, And that is a whole nother realm of vulnerability as a creative because it is I think one of the best ways you captured it last time we spoke is that poetry captures our inner dialogue and narrative form writing feels shareable for me because it requires coherence in Mm. the reader to consume it but poetry is more like jazz no one really needs to understand the rhythm but you and so when someone actually does it's like the language we speak. And I love that. It feels magical. But I think also that there's like a, a such a risk of putting that out there because, yeah, I do believe that poetry is like, it is our internal dialogue. It's like the things that we say to ourselves when we don't anticipate other people are listening. So, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and I think, you know, if it's called creative writing, but I think at the core of it, it's like, it's just raw like it's Mm -hmm. you in raw form and like when you share that with other people I think that there can be such a a fear of like rejection Mm -hmm. in a sense like yes it's nice to be seen but if someone rejects that part of you that's like the deepest you know Mm -hmm. part of you that that they have access to I think that that can feel really scary for people at first when they first start sharing their poetry, at least for me, mm-hmm. that was like, you know, a huge fear of mine. But I read that you just posted a poem on your profile. And it was I did. so beautiful. <laughs> I did. I was like, I literally was was keeping that to myself for a while. And I have I have many that I have kept to myself. But it's also like anyone who follows me might know me as a writer now, but it's not poetry. Almost poetry is abstract is a good way to explain it but it also reveals how complicated our minds work you know how like the way our our minds and hearts and spirit they're like a matrix and Mm -hmm. um, for someone to read it and still appreciate the matrix that they are just witnessing is like for a poet poet like you're a poet poet to appreciate it I yeah that's that's all one would want (laughs) Um, and you said that um, last time we spoke, you said that you started writing anonymously. And I love that you started doing it. I might start doing that um, as <laughs> a kind of spill your rage into the ether. Mm-hmm. Whew, that was good. That um, it's almost like the metaphors we use are just extremely intimate. So 
And it's true too yeah. that not all poems or writing or thoughts are for everyone or for performing them. And I'm wondering what are the stories or the things that you would otherwise share? And this is, I guess, a catch 22 trick question that you keep to yourself. Yeah, I've been thinking about this a lot and I think there's layers to it because I think that there are things that the more I write about them, I'm uncovering them. And so sometimes I'm willing to share parts of what I've uncovered, but other parts are just, they're still being like revealed to me. And mm -hmm. so for example, like in the first book that I, I have a collection of poems that I put out two years ago and I didn't talk as much about some of my childhood experiences with my, my mother and my father. And at that time, it was because they felt further away from me. Mm -hmm. um, but in the second book that I'm putting together, like the core of it is really about how I've learned to love people through my mom and dad's relationship with one another and with mm -hmm. me. And so there's a lot of things that come up that I wasn't ready to share the first time around because I think I was still working to like understand them. So there are things like that that I think are being uncovered. And then I think the other piece of it too is, you know, I am married and I have a wonderful husband and partner that I am, am very lucky to have in my life, but him and I are also polyamorous. And so I'm, mm -hmm. I've been dating and seeing people and I recently got out of a relationship, but I am still learning how to like talk about that because I think mm -hmm. that people have a lot of feelings and expectations about marriage that are related to monogamy and that's just not how my relationship works and it's not it's not what I subscribe to mm -hmm. um but I'm very like protective of his experience and what he's willing to share and so I have a lot of work that I feel like really good about but I'm also trying to be I guess sensitive and understanding that that's not just like my experience that I mm -hmm. am sharing it doesn't mean that I'm not gonna share it because I will right. it just means that I'm still figuring out how to share it in a way mm -hmm. that empowers me versus feeling like I'm just putting everything out there for people right. Ooh, that's like a part two <laughs> yeah that is a part two, because I know some people's ears perked up. I would just love to, like, really hear and just learn and listen and be open to, like, all sorts of perspective shifting, knowing about relationships, like, that are under-discussed, types of relationships that are under-discussed, and different ways to have a relationship, a loving relationship that can mm -hmm. still be respectful. I am so curious, but I have a <laughs> I was going to say, so I can curious. talk about that all day. <laughs> so you so, just yeah. let me know. <laughs> yes. Okay. I will be having you back on. Um, I have two more questions, but one is yeah. kind of this idea of, and you wrote, 
one thing, one thing of many that was captivating for me, but you wrote how we consume life or how it consumes us if we aren't careful. And just in the spirit of, you know, you mentioned separating yourself from the trauma. I love and really respect your reparenting your inner child. But as you left what you considered home, did you feel like you were leaving something behind or running towards something? I felt both. <laughs> like, yeah. yeah, I think so. When I left home, I ha- was graduating from college and I had been applying to programs that would take me different places. And the year that I applied to a particular program was like the first year they had it in Seattle. And they really wanted me to stay <laughs> in Seattle to be a part of their like cohort. And I was like, no, get me out of here. Get me as far away from here as possible. And interestingly, the year that I left Seattle is also the year that my dad uh, went to rehab for the 11th time and finally um, got sober. So my mom and my sister have been able to live with him. He's been sober now for 10 years. Um, And they've been able to live with him and be on that journey with him. But I um, left home. And so there's some like, you know, nuanced differences of how we've all processed forgiveness, like as a result of that. But I think that when I left, he was in rehab and we had done it like so many times that I was like, I felt like I was watching him die and I just wanted Mm -hmm. to be as far away from that as possible. And so much of my own identity had become about the trauma of his alcoholism that I just, I needed fresh air to like step away from that environment to be able to figure out who I was as a person. So I think I was running away from who I was And with perspective, I think I was running toward who I wanted to be and who I was becoming. And for me, it was a very healthy move because when I lived home in Seattle, I was very reactive. I had trouble like bonding with people and having long-term relationships with people um, because I was very distrusting of those sort of bonds. Family um, was something that was like really triggering for me and family relationships, even though I'm in a much better place now. And as soon as I moved away from home, I started teaching and I was able to, like I taught really young students. I taught four-year-olds and four-year-olds depend on you a lot. (laughs) I had 23 of them. And I think that I was able to see myself in a really new and different light than I had ever seen myself before. I was like a caregiver. I was a teacher. I had little people who came to school every day and gave me hugs before we started our school day and just had so much hope and like optimism for the future. And my classroom felt like a family because that was something that I didn't feel, I guess, like I had. And so it was really important to me to just pour a lot of love into those spaces. And I think that that's the person that I was running towards is like someone who doesn't have trouble bonding with other people and who who can be loving and who can 
form relationships that are really healthy and based in in care and love. And it was definitely both. And I think that a lot of my writing is about becoming, because I think especially for women, we have these ideas or we're taught these ideas that when we get married, when we become mothers, like that's our journey of becoming is like done. Like our Mm -hmm. 20s is our time. Yeah, like our 20s is our time for us to just like be wild and just do whatever we want to because after we get married and have kids, like we've become and we have other roles we need to fill. And I had a really hard time with that. And now I realize it's because it's not true. Right, right. (laughs) We're always becoming. And I think I feel like now instead of running away from things, I can run towards that becoming and not be scared of it. But yeah, for sure, I found myself doing both when I left home. And since then, I have like also run away from things. <laughs> but I think I'm finally in a place now, I'm 35, where I understand the power of not being afraid of the hurt of the present and really just like embracing it and allowing myself to admit how much something is impacting me in service of allowing it to be a lesson for whoever I'm supposed to be in the future. Mm. I love that. Thank you, Lynn. This has been so beautiful and I'm so glad our, our paths crossed. Me too. Thank you for having me. Yes, absolutely. I have a quick question just on the the anonymous poetry was that poetry and things it was yeah so it's it's actually always been poetry and things the name has not changed okay so you just um, came out of hiding yeah okay. <laughs> you see, if you look if you look me up now you'll see lots of my face <laughs> okay <laughs> awesome <And my> poetry <laughs> I love it. And it is beautiful. And one thing I want to, I want to read just this little bit. We were both in the room of our own poetry project that was curated by our friends, Eniafe Isis and Doriana Diaz, which both you and I contributed to, but one of the poems was yours called Coochie Conversations. And I just wanted to provide a little teaser, but you say, we talk about coochie and niggas. We crackle for hours and joke about how much more we can take before we break. And as a last question, what were your thoughts behind this line? Well, I definitely suggest reading the whole entire poem because I think I was just in a space of reflecting on the way the world treats Black women and like why I always have felt the need to be so strong. And oftentimes my own strength and resilience has been the thing that has gotten in the way of my Mm. vulnerability. Um, And so these last few years, I've just been really embracing like, I'm not strong actually. Well, I am strong, but I'm also soft. I'm very soft and I, I want people who love and care about me to treat me with softness because that's what that's also something that I need in order to just be a person in this world and I think that for me black women have always been 
a safe space because I think that that's something that many of us have had to grapple with because of how the world shows up for us. And I think that the spaces that Black women create and curate for one another can be so powerful, so healing, and so sacred because when we come together, we can cackle, we can talk about mm -hmm. niggas and how they ain't shit sometimes. <laughs> and we can talk about like work and how, you know, somebody tried to put their hands in my hair, they did whatever, whatever it is that happened. There's just things mm -hmm. that don't even need to be explained. We can hold space for each other to cry, to be soft. And from my cousins and my aunties that I talked about, like in the beginning to the friends that I have now in Oakland who have been just like foundations and rocks for me since moving here. I just have always found that when I enter a space that is shared between Black women, I can shed so much of that armor that I have to have in the world and I get the opportunity to just like breathe and be myself. Mm -hmm. So I wanted, I wanted to capture that in that poem. You do it beautifully and you articulate community so well. And I thank you. I thank you. I thank you too. I feel so <laughs> honored to be able to be on as a guest and I'm looking forward to hopefully talking more about things in the future <laughs> yes yes let's talk about let's have some coochie conversations <laughs> yes <laughs> I'm ready. i love it thank you for listening to life i swear you can follow life i swear on instagram and if you haven't yet subscribe rate and review this podcast wherever you get your podcast fix and learn more at lifeiswear.com. I hope you join me next week for another episode. In the meantime, be well, friend.